listening to the most original talk radio station anywhere. We are L.A. Talk Radio at latalkradio.com. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. The Sapphire Planet. The Industrial Revolution was the transition to new manufacturing processes in the period from about 1760 to sometime between 1820 and 1840. The transition included going from hand production methods to machines, to new chemical manufacturing and iron production processes, improved efficiency of water power, the increasing use of steam power, and the development of machine tools. It also included the change from wood and other biofuels to coal. It began in England and within a few decades had spread to Western Europe and the United States. The Industrial Revolution marks a major turning point in history. Almost every aspect of daily life was influenced in some way. In particular, average income and population began to exhibit unprecedented sustained growth. In the words of one Nobel Prize winner, for the first time in history, the living standards of the masses of ordinary people have begun to undergo sustained growth. Nothing remotely like this economic behavior is mentioned by the classical economists, even as theoretical possibility. The period of time covered by the Industrial Revolution varies with different historians. Some say that it broke out in Britain in the 1780s 
and was not fully felt until the 1830s and 40s. While others hold that it occurred at roughly between 1760 and 1830. Some 20th century historians have argued that the process of economic and social change took place gradually, and the term revolution is a misnomer. This is still a subject of debate among some historians. GDP per capita was broadly stable before the Industrial Revolution and the emergence of modern capitalist economy. The Industrial Revolution began in an era of per capita economic growth in capitalistic economies. Economic historians are in agreement that the onset of the Industrial Revolution is the most important event in the history of humanity since the domestication of plants and animals. The first Industrial Revolution evolved into the second Industrial Revolution in the transition years between 1840 and 1870, when technological and economic progress gained momentum with the increasing adaptation of steam-powered boats, ships, and railways, the large-scale manufacture of machine tools, and the increasing use of steam-powered factories. The earliest use of the term Industrial Revolution could be seen in a letter in July of 1799 by French envoy Louis Guillain Otto, announcing that France had entered the race to industrialize. There were very many major technological developments during the Industrial Revolution. The commencement of the Industrial Revolution is closely linked to a small number of innovations beginning in the second half of the 18th century. By the years 1830s, the following gains had been made in important technologies. First were textiles. Mechanized cotton spinning, powered by steam or water, increased the output of a worker by a factor of about 1,000. The power loom increased the output of a worker by a factor of over 40. The cotton gin increased productivity or removing seed from cotton by a factor of 50. Large gains in productivity also occurred in spinning and weaving of wool and linen, but they were not as great as was in cotton. Then there was steam power. The efficiency of steam engines increased so that they used between one-fifth and one-tenth as much fuel. The adaptation of stationary steam engines to rotary motion made them suitable for industrial uses. The high-pressure engines had a high power-to-white ratio, making it suitable for transportation. Steam power underwent a rapid expansion after the 1800s. Finally, iron making. The substitution of coke for charcoal 
greatly lowered the fuel cost of pig iron and wrought iron production. Using coke also allowed larger blast furnaces, resulting in economies of scale. The cast iron blowing cylinder was first used in 1760. It was later improved by making it double acting, which allowed higher furnace temperatures. The puddling process produced a structural grade iron at a lower cost than the finery forge. The rolling mill was 15 times faster than hammering wrought iron. Hot blast greatly increased fuel efficiency in iron production. Textile manufacturing. In the late 17th and 18th centuries, the British government passed a series of Kalakiko Acts in order to protect the domestic woolen industry from the increasing amounts of cotton fabric that were being imported from East India. There was also a demand for heavier fabric, which was met by a domestic industry around Lancashire that produced fustian, a cloth with a flax warp and cotton weft. Flax was used for the warp because wheel-spun cotton did not have sufficient strength, but the resulting blend was not as soft as 100% cotton and was more difficult to sew. Spinning and weaving were done in households for domestic consumption and as a cottage industry under putting-out system. Occasionally, the work was done in the workshop of a master weaver. Under the putting-out system, home-based workers produced under contract to merchant sellers who often supplied the raw materials. In the off-season, the women typically farmers' wives, did the spinning, and the men did the weaving. Using the spinning wheel, it took anywhere from four to eight spinners to supply one handloom weaver. The flying shuttle patented in 1733 by John Kay, with a number of subsequent improvements, including an important one in 1747, doubled the output of the weaver, worsening the imbalance between spinning and weaving. It became widely used around Lancashire after 1760 when Robert K. John's son invented the drop box. Lewis Paul patented the roller spinning machine and the flyer and bobbin system for drawing wool to a more even thickness. Developed with the help of John Wyatt in Birmingham, Paul and Wyatt opened a mill in Birmingham which used their new rolling machine powered by a donkey. In 1743, a factory was opened in Northampton with 50 spindles on each of five of Paul's and Wyatt's machines. This operated until 1764. A similar mill was built by Daniel Bourne in Leominster, but this burnt down. Both Lewis Paul and Daniel Bourne patented carding machines in 1748. Using two sets of rollers that traveled at different speeds, 
It was later used in the first cotton spinning mill. Lewis's invention was later developed and improved by Richard Arkwright in his water frame and Samuel Crompton in his spinning mule. In 1764, in the village of Stanhill, Lancashire, James Hargreaves invented the spinning jenny, which he patented in 1770. It was the first practical spinning frame with multiple spindles. The jenny worked in a similar manner to the spinning wheel by first clamping down on the fibers, then by drawing them out, followed by twisting. It was a simple wooden frame machine that only cost about six sterling for a 40 spindle model in 1792 and was used mainly by home spinners. The Jenny produced a lightly twisted yarn only suitable for weft, not warp. The spinning frame or water frame was developed by Richard Arkwright who, along with two partners, patented it in 1769. The design was partly based on the machining be- machine built for Thomas High by clockmaker John Kay, who was hired by Arkwright. For each spindle, the water frame used a series of four pairs of rollers, each operating at successively higher rot- rotating speeds to draw out the fiber, which was then twisted by the spindle. The roller spacing was slightly longer than the fiber length, too close a spacing caused the fibers to break, while too distant a space caused uneven thread. The top rollers were leather-covered, and loaded on the rollers was applied by a weight. The weights kept the twist from backing up before the rollers. The bottom rollers were wood and metal, with fluting along the length. The water frame was able to produce a hard medium-count thread suitable for warp, finally allowing 100% cotton cloth to be made in Britain. A horse powered the first factory to use the spinning frame. Water power was used by Arkwright and partners at a factory in Cromford, Derbyshire, in 1771, giving the name to its invention. Samuel Crompton's spinning mule, introduced in 1779, was a combination of the spinning jenny and the water frame in which the spindles were placed on a carriage, which went through an operational sequence during which the rollers stopped while the carriage moved away from the drying rollers to finish drawing out the fibers as the spindles started rotating. Crompton's mule was able to produce finer thread than hand spinning and at a lower cost. Mule spun thread was of suitable strength to be used as warp and finally allowed Britain to produce good quality calico cloth. Realizing that the expiration of the Arkwright patent would greatly increase the supply of spun cotton and led to a shortage of weavers, Edmund Cartwright developed a vertical power loom which he patented in 1785. In 1776, he patented a two-man operated loom that was more conventional. Cartwright built two factories. The first burned down, and the second was sabotaged by his own workers. In 
Cartwright's loom design had several flaws, the most serious being thread breakage. Samuel Horrocks patented a fairly successful loom in 1813. Horrocks loom was improved by Richard Roberts in 1822, and these were produced in large numbers by Roberts, Hill, and Company. The demand for cotton presented an opportunity to planters in the southern United States who thought upland cotton would be a profitable crop if a better way could be found to remove the seed. Eli Whitney responded to the challenge by inventing the cotton gin, an inexpensive device. The cotton gin, a man could remove the seeds from as much upland cotton in one day as it would have previously taken a woman working two months to process at one pound per day. Other inventors increased the efficiency of the individual steps of spinning, which are carding, twisting and spinning, and rolling, so that the supply of yarn increased greatly, which fed a weaving industry that was advancing with improvements to shuttles and the loom or frame. The output of the individual laborer increased dramatically with the effect that the new machines were seen as a threat to employment, and early innovators were attacked and their inventions were destroyed. To capitalize upon these advances, it took a class of entrepreneurs of which the most famous is Richard Arkwright. He is credited with a list of inventions, but these were actually developed by people such as Thomas Hyes and John Kay. Arkwright nurtured the inventors, patented the ideas, financed the initiatives, and protected the machines. He created the cotton mill, which brought the production process together in a factory, and he developed the use of power, first horsepower, then water power, which made cotton manufacture a mechanized industry. Before long, steam power was applied to drive textile machinery. Manchester acquired the nickname Cottonopolis during the early 19th century, owing to its sprawl of textile factories. But Textiles were not the only innovation during the Industrial Revolution. Metallurgy was changing, too. A major change in the metal industries during the era of the Industrial Revolution was the replacement of wood and other biofuels with coal. For a given amount of heat, coal required much less labor to mine than cutting wood and coal was more abundant than wood. The use of coal in smelting started somewhat before the Industrial Revolution, based on inventions by Sir Clement Clerk and others from 1678. Using coal reverberatory furnaces known as copolas, they were operated by flames playing on the ore and charcoal or coke mixture reducing the oxide to metal. This had the advantage that impurities, such as sulfur ash, in the coal do not migrate into the metal. 
This technology was applied to lead from 1678 and to copper from 1687, and it was also applied to iron foundry work in the 1690s. But in this case, the revertory furnace was known as the air furnace. The foundry coppola is different and a later innovation. This was followed by Abraham Darby, who made great strides using coke to fuel his blast furnace at Cole Brookdale in 1709. However, the coke pig iron he made was used mostly for the production of cast iron goods such as pots and kettles. He had the advantage over his rivals in that his pots, cast by his patented process, were thinner and cheaper than theirs. Coke pig iron was hardly used to produce bar iron in forges until the mid-1750s, when his son, Abraham Darby II, built horse hay and Ketley furnaces, not far from Colebrookdale. By then, coke pig iron was cheaper than charcoal pig iron. Since cast iron was becoming cheaper and more plentiful, it began being a structural material following the building of the Innovation Iron Bridge in 1778 by Abraham Darby III. Bar iron for smiths to forge into consumer goods was still made into finery forges and it long has been. However, new processes were adopted in the ensuing years. The first is referred to today as potting and stamping, but this was superseded by Henry Court's puddling process. From 1785, perhaps, because of improved version of potting and stamping was about to come out of patent, a greater expansion in the output of British iron industry began. The new process did not depend on the use of charcoal at all, and were therefore not limited by charcoal sources. Henry Court developed two significant iron manufacturing processes, rolling in 1783 and puddling in 1784. Rolling replaced hammering from consolidated wrought iron and in spelling some of the dross. Rolling was 15 times faster than hammering with a trip hammer. Puddling produced a structural grade iron at a relatively low cost. Puddling was a means of decarbonizing pig iron by slow oxidation, with iron ore as the oxygen source. As the iron was manually stirred using a long rod, the decarbonized iron, having a higher melting point than cast iron, was raked into globs by the puddler. When the glob was large enough, the puddler would remove it. Puddling was backbreaking and extremely hot work. Few puddlers lived to be 40 years old. Puddling was done in a reverberatory furnace, allowing coal or coke to be used as fuel. The puddling process continued to be used until the late 19th century, when iron was being displaced by steel. Because puddling required human skill in sensing the iron globs, this process was never successfully mechanized.
Up to that time, British iron manufacturers had to use considerable amounts of imported iron to supplement native supplies. This came principally from Sweden in the mid-17th century, and later also from Russia from the end of the 1720s. However, from 1785, imports decreased because of the new iron-making technology, and Britain became an exporter of bar iron, as well as a manufacturer of wrought iron consumer goods. Two decades before the Industrial Revolution, an improvement was made in the production of steel, which was an expensive commodity and used only where iron would not do, such as for cutting-edge tools and for springs. Benjamin Huntsman developed his crucible steel technique in the 1740s. The raw material for this was blister steel, made by the cementation process. The supply of cheaper iron and steel aided a number of industries, such as those making nails, hinges, wire, and other hardware items. The development of machinery tools allowed better working of iron, causing it to be increasingly used in the rapidly growing machinery and engine industries. Then there was mining. Coal mining in Britain, particularly in South Wales, started early, before the steam engine. Pits were often shallow bell pits following a steam of coal along the surface, which were abandoned as the coal was extracted. In other cases, if the geology was favorable, the coal was mined by means of adit or drift mine driven into the side of the hill. Shaft mining was done in some areas, but the limiting factor was the problem of removing water. The mines would flood. It could be done by hauling buckets of water up the shaft or to a sow, a tunnel driven into the hill to drain a mine. In either case, the water had to be discharged into a stream or ditch at level where it could flow away by gravity. The introduction of the steam pump by Savery in 1698 and the Newcomen steam engine in 1712 greatly facilitated the removal of water and enabled shafts to be made deeper, enabling more coal to be extracted. These were developments that had begun before the Industrial Revolution, but the adaptation of John Smeaton's improvements to the Newcomen engine followed by James Watt's more efficient steam engine from the 1770s, reduced the fuel cost of engines, making mines more profitable. Coal mining was very dangerous, owing to the presence of fire damp in many cold seams. Some degree of safety was provided by the safety lamp, which was invented in 1816 by Sir Humphrey Davy and independently by George Stevenson. However, the lamps provided a false dawn because they became very unsafe very quickly and provided a weak light. Fire damp explosions continue, often setting off coal dust explosions, 
so casualties grew during the entire 19th century. Conditions of work were very poor, with a high causality rate from rock falls. Steam power. The development of stationary steam engines was an important element in the Industrial Revolution. However, for most of the period of the Industrial Revolution, the majority of industrial power was supplied by water and wind. In Britain, by 1800, an estimated 10,000 horsepower was being supplied by steam. By 1815, steam power had grown to 210,000 horsepower. A small power requirements continued to be provided by animal and human muscle until the late 19th century. The first real attempt at industrial use of steam power was due to Thomas Savory in 1698. He constructed and patented in London a low-lift combined vacuum and pressure water pump that generated about one horsepower and was used in numerous waterworks and tried in a few mines. Hence the brand name, The Miner's Friend. Savory's pump was economical in small horsepower ranges, but it was prone to boiler explosions in larger sizes. Savory pumps continued to be produced until the late 18th century. The first safe and successful steam power plant was introduced by Thomas Newcomen before 1712. Newcomen apparently conceived the Newcomen steam engine quite independently of Savory, but the latter had taken out a very wide-ranging patent. Newcomen and his associates were obliged to come to an agreement with him, marketing the engine until 1733 under a joint patent. Newcomen's engines appear to have been based on Poppins' experiments carried out 30 years earlier and employed a piston and cylinder, one end of which was open to the atmosphere above the piston. Steam just above the atmospheric pressure, all that the boiler could stand, was introduced into the lower half of the cylinder beneath the piston during the gravity-induced upstroke. The steam was then condensed by a jet of cold water injected into the steam space to produce a partial vacuum. The pressure differential between the atmospheric and the vacuum on the other side of the piston displaced it downward into the cylinder, raising the opposite end of a rocking beam to which was attached a gang of gravity-actuated reciprocating force pumps housed in the mineshaft. The engine's downward power stroke raised the pump, priming it and preparing the pumping stroke. At first, the phases were controlled by hand, but within 10 years, an escarpment mechanism had been devised working by vertical plug tree suspended from the rocking beam which rendered the engine self-acting. A number of Newcomen engines were successfully put to use in Britain, from draining here to unworkable deep mines. 
With the engine on the surface, these were large machines requiring a lot of capital to build and produced about 5 horsepower, or 3.7 kilowatts. They were extremely ineffective by modern standards, but when located where coal was cheap at pit heads, opened up a great expansion in coal mining by allowing mines to go deeper. Despite their disadvantages, Newcomen engines were reliable and easy to maintain and continued to be used in the coal fields until the early decades of the 19th century. By 1729, when Newcomen died, his engines had spread first to Hungary in 1722, Germany, Austria, and Sweden. A total of 110 are known to have been built by 1733, when the joint patent expired of which 14 were abroad. In the 1770s, the engineer John Smeaton built some very large examples and introduced a number of improvements. A total of 1,454 engines had been built by the year 1800. A fundamental change in working principles was brought about by James Watt. In close collaboration with Matthew Bolton, he had succeeded by 1778 in perfecting his steam engine, which incorporated a series of radical improvements, notably the closing off of the upper part of the cylinder, thereby making the low-pressure steam drive the top of the piston instead of the atmosphere, use of a steam jacket, and the celebrated separate steam condenser chamber. The separate condenser did away with the cooling water that had to be injected directly into the cylinder, which cooled the cylinder and wasted steam. Likewise, the steam jacket kept steam from condensating in the cylinder, also improving efficiency. These improvements increased engine efficiency so that Bolton and Watt's engine used only 20-25% to 25% as much coal per horsepower hour as Newcomen's. Bolton and Watt opened the Soho foundry for the manufacture of such engines in the year 1795. Nor could the atmospheric engines be easily adapted to drive the rotating wheel, although Wasborough and Pickard did succeed in doing so afterwards in 1780. However, by 1783, the more economical Watt steam engine had been fully developed into a double-acting rotative type, which meant that it could be used to directly drive the rotary machinery of a factory or mill. Both of Watt's basic engine types were commercially very successful, and by 1800 the firm Bolton and Watt had constructed 496 engines with 164 driving reciprocating pumps, 24 serving as blast furnaces, and 308 powering mill machinery. Most of the engines generated from 5 to 10 horsepower, which is approximately 7.5 kilowatts. The development of machine tools, such as the lathe, planing, and shaping machines powered by these engines, enabled all the metal parts of the engines to be easily and accurately cut and in turn made it possible to build larger and more powerful engines. 
until about 1800, the most common pattern of steam engine was the beam engine, built as an integral part of stone or brick engine house, but soon various parents, patterns of the self-contained portative engines, ready to removable but not on wheels, were developed such as the table engine. Around the start of the 19th century, the Cornish engineer Richard Trevithick and the American Oliver Evans began to construct higher-pressure, non-condensing steam engines, exhausting against the atmosphere. This allowed an engine and a boiler to be combined into a single unit, compact enough to be used on mobile road and rail locomotives and steamboats. By the early 19th century, after the expiration of Watt's patent, the steam engine underwent many improvements by a host of inventors and engineers. Chemicals were next. The large-scale production of chemicals was an important development during the Industrial Revolution. The first of these was the production of sulfuric acid by the lead chamber process invented by Englishman John Roebuck, who was, incidentally, James Watt's first partner in 1746. He was able to greatly increase the scale of the manufacturer of sulfuric acid by replacing the relatively expensive glass vessels formerly used with larger, less expensive chambers made of riveted sheets of lead. Instead of making a small amount each time, he was able to make around 100 pounds in each of the chambers, at least a tenfold increase. The production of an alcohol on a large scale became an important goal as well, and Nicolas Leblanc succeeded in 1791 in introducing a method for the production of sodium bicarbonate. In Leblanc's process was a reaction of the sulfuric acid with sodium chloride to give sodium sulfate and hydrochloric acid. The sodium sulfate was heated with limestone, known as calcium carbonate, and coal to give a mixture of sodium carbonate and calcium sulfide. Adding water separated the soluble sodium carbonate from the calcium sulfide. The process produced a large amount of pollution. The hydrochloric acid was initially vented in the air, and calcium sulfide was useless and a waste product. Nonetheless, This synthetic soda ash proved economical compared to that from burning specific plants or from kelp, which was previously dominant source of soda ash, and also to potash, which is potassium carbonate derived from hardwood ashes. These two chemicals were very important because they enabled the introduction of a host of other inventions replacing many small-scale operations with more cost-effective and controllable processes. Sodium carbonate had many uses in the glass, textile, soap, and paper industries. Early uses for sulfuric acid included pickling, which is removing rust from iron and steel, and for bleaching cloth. The development of bleaching powder 
calcium hypochlorite by Scottish chemist Charles Tennant in about the year 1800, based on discoveries by French chemist Claude Louis Berthold, revolutionized the bleaching process in textile industry by dramatically reducing the time required from months to days for the traditional process then in use, which required repeated exposures to the sun in bleach fields after soaking the textile with alkali or sour milk. Tennant's factory at South Rolex, North Glasgow, Scotland, became the largest chemical plant in the world. In 1824, Joseph Aspidin, a British bricklayer turned builder, patented a chemical process for making Portland cement, which was an important advance in the building trades. This process involves sintering a mixture of clay and limestone to about 1400 degrees centigrade or 2500 degrees Fahrenheit, then grinding it into a fine powder, which is then mixed with water, sand, and gravel to produce concrete. Portland cement was used by the famous English engineer Mark Isambard Brunel several years later when constructing the Thames Tunnel. Cement was used on large scale in the construction of the London sewage system a generation later. After 1860, the focus on chemical innovations in dye stuffs and Germany took the world leadership, building strong chemical industry. Aspiring chemists flocked to German universities in the 1860s through 1914 era to learn the latest techniques. British scientists, by contrast, lacked research universities and did not train advanced students. Instead, the practice was to hire German-trained chemists. The Industrial Revolution also created a demand for metal parts used in machinery. This led to the development of several machine tools for cutting metal parts. They have their own origins in the tools developed in the 18th century by makers of clocks and watches and scientific instrument makers to enable them to batch produce small mechanisms. Before the advent of machine tools, metal was worked manually using the basic hand tools of hammers, files, scrapers, saws, and chisels. Consequently, the use of metal was kept to a minimum. Wooden components had the disadvantage of changing dimensions with temperature and humidity, and the various joints tended to rack or work loose over time. As the Industrial Revolution progressed, machines with metal parts and frames became more common. Hand methods of production were more and intensely laborious and costly, and precision was difficult to achieve. Pre-industrial machinery was built by various craftsmen. Millwrights built water and windmills. Carpenters made wooden framing, and smiths and turners made metal parts. The first large machine tool was the cylinder boring machine used for boring the large dynamometer cylinders on early steam engines. The planing machine, the slotting machine, 
and the shaping machine were developed in the early decades of the 19th century. Although the milling machine was invented at this time, it was not developed as a serious workshop tool until somewhere later in the 19th century. Military production as well had a hand in the development of machine tools. Henry Mutsley, who trained a school of machine tool makers early in the 19th century, was employed at the Royal Arsenal, Woolwich, as a young man, where he would have seen a large horse-driven wood machines for cannon boring made and worked by the Verbergens. He later worked for Joseph Braun on the production of metal locks. Brahman patented a lathe that had similarities to the slide rest lathe. Mudslay perfected the slide rest lathe, which could cut machine screws of variable pitches using changeable gears between the spindle and the lead screw. Before its invention, screws could not be cut to any precision using various earlier lathe designs, some of which were copied from a template. Maudslay's lay was later called one of history's most important inventions. Maudslay left Brahms' employment and set up his own shop. He was engaged to build the machinery for making ships, pulley blocks for the Royal Navy, in the Portsmouth block mills. These machines were all metal and were the first machines for mass production and making components with a degree of interchangeability. The lessons Mosley learned about the need for stability and precision he adapted to the development of machine tools and in his workshops he trained a generation of men to build on his work such as Richard Roberts Joseph Klanemann, and Joseph Whitworth. James Fox of Derby had a healthy export trade in machine tools for the first third of the century, as did Matthew Murray of Leeds. Roberts was a maker of high-quality machine tools and a pioneer of use of jigs and gauges for precision shop measurements. In a half-century following the invention of the fundamental machine tools, the machinery industry would become the largest segment of the economy by value added in the United States. Another major industry of the, la- of the later Industrial Revolution was gas lighting. Though others made a similar invention elsewhere, the large-scale introduction of this was the work of William Murdoch, an employee of Bolton and Watt the Birmingham steam engine pioneers. The process consisted of the large-scale gasification of coal in furnaces, the purification of the gas, which means the removal of sulfur, ammonia, and heavy hydrocarbons, and its storage and distribution. The first gas lighting utilities were established in London between 1812 and 1820. They soon became one of the major consumers of coal in the United Kingdom. Gas lighting had an impact 
on social and industrial organizations because it allowed factories and stores to remain open longer than with the tallow candles or oils. Its introduction allowed nightlife to flourish in cities and towns as interiors and streets could be lighted on a scale larger than before. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.